Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. If you have been with us regularly, uh, and it's been close to a year now since we began our study in the Gospel, and uh, we are a year later just in chapter 15. I do hope to be done before Christmas, just in case you're wondering. Uh, But last week we read verses 1 through uh, 17, although I told you I was only planning on covering the first eight verses and that we would cover the rest of that section today. I think just for contextual reasons, I will read verses 1 through 17 again. And so again, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John 15, 1 through 17. And listen carefully now to God's holy and inspired word. Jesus is speaking and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. And I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us. This day, may all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Last week, we looked at the first eight verses of this chapter, and we took a good bit of time to remark on the context of these words of Jesus, spoken on the night of his betrayal and arrest. Spoken, we believe, as Jesus and the eleven made their way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, pausing perhaps in the sight of a vineyard under the full moon, 
where the Savior would make a declaration concerning His identity. For when He said, I am the vine, He was telling the disciples that all the Old Testament imagery concerning Israel as a planting of the Lord, a vine transplanted from Egypt, as Psalm 80 declares, that all of that was really about Him. Where Israel failed to live obediently unto the Lord and failed to bring honor and glory to her God and King, Jesus as the true vine, as the true Israel, would not fail to keep that covenant. And then Jesus said that not only was he the true vine, but that his disciples were the branches on that vine, bearing much fruit and thereby bringing glory to God the Father. And Jesus described this organic relationship as our abiding or remaining in him and he remaining in us. Now it is easy for us to miss the point when metaphorical language is being employed. We're frequently prone to push the metaphor beyond its original intent or to latch on to the wrong aspect of it. In this case, there are those who want to investigate the what, the when, the how, the why of abiding or being in Christ and He being in us and so forth, when the main thrust of Jesus' point here is all about being fruitful for the kingdom. The point of the metaphor is to show the disciples that their future ministry is about bearing fruit and that they will not be capable of doing that if they attempt to do it apart from Christ. And we see this more clearly in the verses that are before us this morning as the whole abiding idea shifts from the vine and the branches to the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for us and the role then that obedience plays in abiding in Him. Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So where we may have been a bit perplexed as to the whole vine and branches metaphor and how that really works, Jesus provides us with a relational example of what he means when he begins to talk about the Father and the Son. Now here's a relationship that these men can certainly understand. They know firsthand about fathers and sons. They know the pride and the joy they feel when the Son, their sons, are guided and directed by them and without resistance, without objection, The Son follows the Father's command and obey. They also remember the times when they, as sons, disobeyed their own fathers and the disappointment that ensued. There was no joy in those moments. There was just shame. There was heartache. Commentator D.A. Carson notes that the Heavenly Father's love for the Son, as the Gospel writer expresses it here, is in the Greek aorist tense. That's a past, kind of a past completed sense. And that he says, 
it probably signals the perfection, the completeness of the father's love for his son, including his love for him before time began. Well, that same verb tense is used when Jesus expresses his love for the disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now again, let us not lose sight of the context here. This is being stated on Thursday evening. Jesus is just a short time away from his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. In less than 24 hours, Jesus will be dead and buried, and he knows it. His perfect, complete love for the disciples is about to be put on public display, although most of the world will be oblivious to what Jesus is doing. But imagine the disciples who will later remember these words of Jesus and put them into the context of the crucifixion. For that will bring on an entirely different dimension to their understanding of godly love. And it is this kind of godly love that serves as the fountainhead for our obedience. If we do not have a sense of the enormity of God's love for us, such that He would lay down His life for us wretched sinners, if we do not have a sense of the depth of Christ's love for us, even before we were created, such that he would agree to fulfill the Father's will for him in the plan of our redemption. If we do not have a sense of the breadth of God's love for us, such that he would be willing to suffer the deepest sense of abandonment when the Father poured out upon him all the wrath that should have been ours, then we will never have any desire to fully obey Him. Paul says to the Romans, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Jesus is not expecting that we failed sinners will be able to live obediently without spiritual assistance. He knows what we're made of. John says in his first Letter, we love because He first loved us. Our love for Him is a response to His immeasurable love for us that we have experienced. And that love for Him, if it's genuine, will result in a life that is characterized by obedience. It will be characterized by a dying carnality as well as a quickening spirituality. It will be characterized by our bearing much fruit, fruit that will itself abide. This is a salvation that is marked by deliverance from sin. You see, if our understanding of salvation is simply that I have a ticket to heaven, then we have failed to adequately comprehend the length and depth and and breadth of Christ's great gift for us. We're not expected to look forward to some future deliverance, but we are given a foretaste of that deliverance at the moment that we are regenerated to new life. And we begin experiencing that deliverance now. That experience begins with the eternal presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It includes a deep sense of our sins being completely forgiven 
our being cleansed of our guilt and our shame. It involves a sense of Christ's peace, not as the world gives, but a peace that passes all understanding being given to us. It involves His love being poured into our hearts. It involves His joy, as He says here, taking root in us and becoming our joy and then growing into a rich fullness. And on and on go the many facets of our spiritual deliverance, ever-growing, ever-changing, ever-advancing, and preparing us for that moment when we will with unveiled faces behold the glory of Almighty God. This salvation is the result of God's graciousness in choosing us. Now, the main point of this sermon is not about election, although it certainly could be because Jesus offers an excellent teaching moment here when he says to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And while the point of this sermon is not about election, we do not want to race past the truth here that God alone will receive all the credit for our salvation. No one will ever be able to take any credit for our being in Christ other than God. When the full stories of our individual salvations shall be revealed in eternity, we will all come to realize the initiatives that God took in wooing us to Himself and equipping us with all that we needed to bring us to a point of surrender and trust in Christ. And we will all throw our crowns before His throne and acknowledge that He alone is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For God created all things, and by His will all things existed and were created. But what we're focusing on today has more to do with what Jesus says when He declares that we have been appointed to go and bear fruit. And this brings us back to the imagery then of the vine and the branches, where we are told that whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now what does Jesus have in mind here? Well, a case can certainly be made for an internal spiritual development that Paul articulates in his Galatian letter, which we read a moment ago, when he lists several fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those are certainly a fruitfulness that Jesus would not argue against and we would most likely associate with Jesus' affirmation that by their fruit you shall know them. In fact, John himself in his first letter indicates that a complete absence of godly love is the first indication that we have that a person has not been made new in Christ. But in Paul's Galatian letter, he's making the argument that there is a stark difference between those who have been redeemed, regenerated to new life in Christ, and those who have not. And he offers a long list of the former behaviors that characterize many of his uh, listeners, his readers, before they heard the gospel proclaimed. And these he described as the works of the flesh. And then he writes, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, who make a practice of these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it is at that point that he offers his list of spiritual characteristics 
that begin to be developed in those who have been redeemed. And these fruit of the Spirit are not the product of those who follow the law, but rather are evident in those who are walking by the Spirit. Because, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So when we think of our being fruitful, we could certainly consider and include a discussion of the spiritual characteristics that mark the true Christian's life. But I believe that the fruitfulness that Jesus has in mind here is of a missional variety. Jesus commands that the disciples go and bear fruit. One does not necessarily need to go in order to develop the spiritual characteristics Paul mentions in Galatians 5. Jesus is speaking of a fruitfulness that will in and of itself abide. And that would suggest that what Jesus is setting before the disciples here is a mission to go into all the world, make disciples, teach them to observe all that he has commanded. And this is what the nucleus of the church was appointed to do. And by extension, the whole church is always appointed to do. To go and to bear fruit to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, telling others about this Savior who loves us with the same love as the Father has for the Son and leading them into this communion of faith. And if that assessment is correct, then the verses we read last week begin to take on a little different flavor than we may have first tasted. Verse 2, Every branch in me, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, I am not, and Jesus is not suggesting here, that every disciple needs to hit the road for him and become a missionary to Pakistan. I'm I'm not even suggesting that every disciple must be the one to lead a sinner in the sinner's prayer and thus close the deal. Paul acknowledges that some plow the ground, some plant the seed, some water and cultivate, and some harvest. But it is always God who gives the increase. But what I believe Jesus is indicating to us here as disciples is that each of us must become ever more aware and sensitive to how he desires to use us in this evangelistic endeavor to reach more and more of the sheep who belong to his flock. So how often has the Spirit nudged us to speak a word for Christ and we have resisted doing so for fear of what someone might think? Or how often do we pray that God will open a door for us to reach a neighbor, a family member, a co-worker, who we are pretty sure is not yet a believer? How often do we avail ourselves of the opportunity to grow in our own knowledge and wisdom of the Lord Jesus so that we are better equipped to answer those puzzling questions that people pose when they discover that we are a Christian Or how often do we extend hospitality to another or offer to help in a neighborly way 
or respond to a presenting need with the idea that such an act of Christian love might lead to a deeper relationship that might one day offer the opportunity to share Christ with them. Beloved, I can keep asking these kinds of questions all day long. You get the picture. Jesus is not expecting that one person will do it all as to reaching another person for Christ's sake. But he is expecting that as disciples, we develop an eye and a heart for the lost and that we will be at his disposal in that mission and that we will not resist him when he urges us to speak or act on his behalf, thus bearing witness to his salvific work. Now this may strike a certain fear in your heart. Most Christians I know grow faint when you begin to talk about evangelism and the excuses begin to pour out of their mouths faster than a New Yorker talking about their hatred for the Boston Red Sox. I mean, it comes flowing out. But when we read this again, we need to take comfort in this fact. Jesus chose us and appointed us for this. In other words, the mission that we have before us is not something that is foisted upon us and we're left to figure it out. It is something that Almighty God has planned since before the beginning of time. The prophet Jeremiah came to this realization. He says this. this. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Paul recognized it. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These verses and many more are to assure us that God's hand is firmly placed upon us and under us and around us to equip us for success in the mission that He sets before us as individuals and collectively as the church. And in this we should take comfort that God has planned our mission and has determined that we will be successful in it. Hear Jesus' words again, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. I don't know if you heard what Jesus said right there. He's giving us permission to name drop when we come to God the Father. As those who have been chosen and appointed to carry on this mission of bearing fruit for the kingdom, Jesus has said, whatever you ask the Father in my name. The Father loves the Son with a perfect and complete love. The Son has obeyed the Father all the way to Calvary and to the moment when He took His final breath. 
The father was so pleased with the son's atoning work that he did not abandon him to the grave, but raised him on the third day. And the son has just advised his disciples to ask the father whatever they want in this mission of reaching others for his sake by mentioning his name. Now, is that what we're doing as Christians? Is this what we're doing as a church? Beloved, this is our mission. This is what we've been called and appointed to do. So let us drop to our knees in prayer. And let us boldly ask the Father to so equip us with all that we need that we might become even more effective in reaching our world for Christ. Let me invite you to bow your heads and pray with me for a moment.